All right, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. If you don't have a Bible, we will have uh, the scriptures up on the screen. Um, if you don't own a Bible, um, we'd love to give you one. So if you make your way to the back of our campus, we have a bookstore back there, and just let them know that you don't have a Bible, and we'll, uh, we'll make sure you get one. Romans chapter 6. I don't know if we have any Bob Dylan fans in the house today. <laughs> you know, there was way more enthusiasm for Bob Dylan at the 8 o'clock service, just so you know. For some, for some reason, they perked up as soon as it said Bob Dylan. Um, yeah, Beach Boys, maybe. Uh, no, Bob Dylan, uh, supposedly in the late 70s, had a conversion experience. Claimed a relationship with Jesus, wrote an album called Slow Train Coming, and in that album there was a song called Gotta Serve Somebody. That song, in essence, is one of the themes of Romans 6, the end of Romans 6. I'll give you a little snapshot, a little Dylan theology here. Here's, here's one verse, one chorus. You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you might live in a dome. You might own, sounds like Seuss, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> I've never seen them together. Man, this is strange. Um, you might own guns and you might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks, but you have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you know you got to serve somebody. Right there, in essence, is a snapshot of what of what Paul says in the end of Romans 6. And so I thought it would be good for us. I don't know where you've been in this journey of Romans. We have spent six months dealing with six chapters now. Today we'll finish chapter 6. I want to give us a quick five-minute flyover because I think conceptually just all the context really helps us understand his punchline in, in the end of Romans 6. So um, just to back up and look at it a little bit, in the first six chapters, Paul has been dealing with two extremes, to make it simple. One extreme is dealing with the people who think that by their own efforts, they can satisfy God. That by, they can be good enough to make it to heaven. If their good pile is bigger than their bad pile, that God owes them something. And so Paul blows that up by talking about the sin, the nature of sin, and the, and the deceptiveness of sin, and how we're all twisted in that. And the wages of that sin, we'll see even today, is death. And so Paul presents to us the problem, and then he presents this mind-blowing solution, God's grace. Unmerited favor to sinners who can't work their way out of the problem, can't be good enough, can't be religious enough. They simply put their faith and trust in the work that Jesus has done for them, and they walk free of their sin. Now, that, that is a wonderful, a wonderful solution to sin, but it starts this other story Paul has to deal with, and that is what happens to people who, who grab the idea of grace or may twist the idea of grace and think, well, if we get grace then I guess sin doesn't matter. If I can't work my way out of my problem, if I can't be religious enough for my problem, then maybe if I just, I just uh, trust in God's grace, it's a, it's a license to sin. And I can do whatever I want to do. Paul in chapter 6 deals with and teaches the church on the implications of grace. Yes, it's true. By faith alone, in Christ alone, you and I who can't fix our problems through God's grace can walk free. That's true. But there are some so what's to grace, implications to it. The process uh, that Paul talks about, that we've been talking about for several weeks now, is the process of sanctification. And I, I know it's kind of a churchy word, but it needs to be used because it's biblical. We need to understand why it's important. Paul uses that word twice here in this section. And we've said it this way so we can really understand it. It is a discussion about not just how God saves a person, but what he saves him to. 
there, there's a reality that these two things um, are inseparably linked, a changed heart and a changed life. That God never saves someone he doesn't also lord over. That Jesus is both Savior and Lord. He is both of those things. And some people make the mistake of thinking that God's grace in the gospel means I'm free to do whatever I want to do. I, I can just go because grace is free, it's unearned. But the gospel says that you go from, are you ready for this? Slaves to sin to slaves to righteousness. Never in our life anyone is free. Now, we'll explain that. It might say, you might have some questions as you listen to that, but we'll try to explain it. But let's, let's read this in context um, so that we can get uh, kind of a running start at it. We're going to back up to verse 13 and read at the end of the chapter to get Paul's point here. So, again, the scriptures will be up on the screen for you. Here's what Paul says. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. God, this is your word. And your word has the power to change lives. Your word has the power to bring hope to people who are hopeless. And so I pray, God, that you would take this truth about how you transform Christians and what you freed them to do and be. I pray, God, you'd press it upon the believers in this room. If there are those in this room who have confused the issue of the gospel and think that somehow knowledge of Jesus equals being saved from hell, I pray, God, that you would interrupt that thought today with grace. I pray, God, you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been here for the last several weeks, the passage we read today, starting in verse 15, should sound a little bit familiar because there's a rhythm to what Paul has said. He sort of repeated this rhythm in, in verse 1 of chapter 6 and now in verse 15. So let me just remind you of verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. It's absurd. In verse 15, he says, are we to sin? continue to sin because we're under the law but not under the grace. And he, he says, by no means. That's his kind of two halves of, a, of an identical um, truth that he's trying to communicate here. Now, they're not identical in what they're dealing with, but the outcome is the same. And the outcome is, is simply this, that Christians, real Christians, biblical Christians, can't go on sinning. 
So again, it's the theme of what God does and what we become because of the gospel that he's dealing with. And two particular arguments, one is 1 through 14, and 15 through 23 is the second argument. Here's the first half of what Paul has dealt with, just as a a rewind review. Verse 20, Paul makes this statement. He says, the law came to increase trespass, but where trespass increased, grace superbounded. It increased all the more. And so Paul just assumes or he's heard like this, or there was a response to that truth. Well, if, if it's true that I get more of God, if I sin more, if, if my ultimate number or quantity of sin just reveals more of God, then maybe it makes sense just to go on sinning. Maybe if I just sin all the more, I'll get more of God. And so he deals with that first thing. It's absurd and his explanation is, is basically one word. It can't happen because you're united with Jesus. And this idea of being united with Jesus is being united in what he did when he came to live and die. And when he died, that old person in us, the person that couldn't do anything but sin, the stuck-on-sin person, that person died too, biblically, according to Paul. And so that person who couldn't do anything to solve his problem, who couldn't obey God, who could only sin all the time, that person is gone. And now what's left, this resurrected person in the power of Christ, has this freedom for the first time ever to please God, to obey And so Paul's argument of why that's an absurd thought to think that more sin equals more of God is because God set you free to obey, okay? So that was his first argument in in verses 1 through 14. This last section, however, Paul is dealing with um, rejecting the law as a way to be righteous. So he says in, in verse 14, he says, For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Really, Paul? I mean, there's no law. Does that mean I can sin as much as I want to if there's no law? So he's getting at two angles, but the same conclusion, and he says the same thing. By no means. It's absurd. It's, It's crazy to think that way. He says, we're free from the law, but it doesn't mean we're free. And you've got to hang in here with me because we've used that word a lot to talk about what the gospel does for us, but you'll see his argument in a little bit. But just to kind of cut to the chase, Paul is saying there is no autonomous people. You're a slave to someone. You're a slave to someone. And in fact, in fact, Paul says, as Christians, because of God's grace, we're now slaves to God and to his righteousness. So what he does is talk us through sanctification. I know that's kind of a big word. We don't maybe use a lot in, in our lives, but I think it's worth repeating because it's what the scriptures say. And I want to take a minute to just talk about it. And I think maybe a good way to look at it is, is maybe to talk about what it isn't. Sometimes we learn more about what things are by looking at what they aren't, and so sanctification has been misused and misunderstood, so let's talk about what it isn't. Here's what the first thing it isn't. Sanctification isn't something that happens to us. It's totally different than justification. Justification is we're broken and dead in our transgressions and sins. In fact, the Bible says the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. It makes no sense. I can't sort out the kingdom or my sin on my own. There has to be Holy Spirit intervention. He changes hearts. Hearts that have been changed respond in faith and obedience, right? It's a work that God does to us. Sanctification isn't a work that God does to us. It is this. It is a God, it's a work that God does with us, okay? Justification, solely a work of God. Sanctification is God working with us as we grow in our faith. It is, it is the process that we're in, in which we're made holy. We're called in the scriptures over and over again to pursue holiness in our life. And so God doesn't magically produce holiness in us. He takes our lifetime and he, and he takes 
all the things that we go through as we learn to live holy and transforms our lives over time, right? We've talked about that. So maybe to help you make, make it just a little bit clear, um, let me use an illustration. I, I love football. I love NFL football. It tells me how much I love you because it's going on right now and I'm here with you. So um, just, just, to, just to remind you. Um, Last week was a brutal week. People were dropping like flies. A lot of knee injuries last week. I don't know if you noticed, but I mean, some seriously great players were going out for the year. And, and uh, I've never had a knee injury, but I know this is how it goes, okay? These guys who are diagnosed with some kind of major uh, tendon rip or ligament rip, they would go to the doctor. They would get their MRI. The doctors say, we got to tie that back together again. And they would go off on uh, injury reserve for the rest of the year. What happens is somewhere in this week, after swelling it down, they went under the knife and the doctor fixed the ligament, Right? Fixed it. The rest of this thing, as soon as he wakes up, is getting up on his feet, moving around, and exercising the now-repaired ligament, okay? Okay? The exercise isn't what's going to repair the problem. The doctor already solved the problem. Now it's their job to exercise or rehab the knee. Get it? It's the same thing, spiritually true. We have a problem. Spiritually, we are unresponsive to God. Jesus fixes the problem. It's been solved. We are now dead in Christ and alive in Christ. Amen. That's been solved. The rest of this is rehab. Get it? The rest of this is day by day working out all the sin and inclinations and habits and tendencies of the old guy who couldn't do anything but sin. And so we're just exercising every day through prayer and one another's and church and worship and things and confessions and all sorts of stuff. It's, it's that spiritual rehab. So salvation isn't isn't what's something happening to us. It's God working with us. Okay, here's the other truth about sanctification, and that is it's not a withdrawal from the world. Now, it's been a classic picture to, to, to kind of conceptually think of this holy man living in a monastery removed from all pressures of society, you know, really clarifying his life of obedience. But the Bible blows that up too because it says it's not removing yourself from the world. It's living and following Jesus in the world, right? So it's not kind of getting secluded. So sanctification is also not about some experience you've yet to have or like to have. You know, there are, there's a tendency to think that, uh, that you got to feel it, you know? Like cry a little bit, get goosebumps in worship. You know, have that wonderful moment. You go, man, it's moving. Like, I, I can feel it. Like, like, there's this spiritual advancement because I'm having these feelings. And I'm all for feelings, but that isn't necessarily any sign that you're being advanced spiritually. I'm going to use the dirty words um, when it comes to our growth. We would love to just lay back and let God do everything. And just like grace is something we receive, we'd love to think that somehow this transformation is also something just received. But here, here are the words the Bible uses to describe what happens it are words like submission, repentance, words like discipline, ouch, right? Those are the words that, that the Bible uses to describe now this process of spiritual rehab. Um, now, do we feel sometimes? Of course we do. I love when that happens because I, I get to wrestle with the truth of God, but sanctification is God over time crushing our idols and revealing our sin, so sanctification involves way more pain than parties. Do you understand? It is. That's just the reality of it. It's, it's the work part of how God transforms our lives. And so the rest of what Paul says here in chapter 6 really is the reason to pursue holiness. 
If, if it's true that one through five of Romans applies to you, God's grace to you, not a work of your own, simply received grace, if that's true, then, then he's saying to us, now present yourselves to God, and he's giving us reasons. Now, I love the commands, but God is always faithful to give us kind of motivations and reasons. So the commands are wrapped in, in reasons for us. But let's, let's look a little bit here um, at... Uh, what Paul says in verse 13, he gives us this imperative command. And he says, verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. The word present means to, to set beside. It means to be at someone's disposal. I mean, what Paul is simply saying, and we know this, it reads this way, that Christians choose obedience. Now we, now we get to choose obedience. And so Paul goes on now to give us kind of the reasons to present ourselves. So if you just kind of want to follow the outline, here it goes. He's starting in verse 14 to talk about the reality of God's grace. Can't get enough of this, but this is one of the, the reasons why we present ourselves to God. He says in verse 13, sin will have no dominion over you. It's not going to happen since you're not under the law, but you're under grace. Okay, Paul is telling us, church, that we're no longer under the tyranny of the law, which doesn't mean, by the way, that the law isn't any good, because the law is good. The law reveals a lot about God. It says to us what God loves. It says to us what God hates. It tells us about the character of God. But the law as we experience it, like a list of do's and don'ts, is is this kind of condemning, um, enslaving truth, isn't it? So, for instance, I say to you, church, here's a list of things. And what do you do? You try to muster up the strength to go do those things. And what happens when you can't do those things, right? There is this judgmental part to the law. There is an enslaving part to the law, a tyranny of what you have to do with the guilt of the failure. You can't do it. Has anybody been ever to point at a particular command and go, bulletproof? Has anybody ever done that? If you care about God's gospel, you're going to look at that sin and go, I hate this. I'm condemned by this thing. It judges me a failure every time I can't pull it off, right? And so Paul is saying, you don't have to worry about the law anymore because you're under grace. The law can't expose you as a condemned person because Jesus was condemned for you, amen? The law can't judge you a failure because Jesus was judged for you. And so we walk free. The law doesn't do that anymore. And yet the law is still the heart of God. It's still who he is and what he loves and what he hates. Paul is simply talking about our motivations, He's saying that the motivations change. We don't obey out of fear anymore. Apart from Jesus, that's all you got. God says do, and you go, oh, better make God happy. If I don't do these things, God's going to judge me, or I've got hell to look forward to, or whatever. But in the gospel, you just trust in Christ. You get his grace. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's no more fear to push us around. There is simply a look at what God has done, and now the motivations have gone from fear to gratitude, Right? a love and affection for who God is and what he's done for us. Changes should change everything. You can wake up tomorrow having failed miserably yesterday and your relationship with God hasn't moved one iota. Now that isn't a license to go do it again. That should create in us a gratitude that says, I don't love the things God hates and I don't hate the things God's love and I try to sort that out in my life in obedience. Let me, let me give you an illustration. 
Uh, about 17 years ago, 16 years ago, I moved here from Chicago. I was in a, a church in Chicago, and a man uh, uh, who was on my staff, a high school staff uh, volunteer, I, I met probably 20-some years ago. He was 20 years older than me, um, so he'd be, he'd be in his 70s plus now. He was a car salesman, I think some mob affiliation, <laughs> shady background, radical conversion, like radical conversion. Um, he went from selfish, uh, secret, um, bad relationships to changed. And he was always just looking for ways to obey God and ways to be soft. And, and he was on his second marriage and, and he raised a whole bunch of kids who didn't know Jesus and all the damage that happens when you don't know what you're doing, right? And uh, when he was 55, he decided he wanted to adopt uh, uh, from an inner city family. There was four kids from Cabrini Green, which is the housing projects downtown Chicago. And so he adopted four kids and brought them home, 55 years old. They didn't know anything. They didn't know anything about family. They hadn't had a father. And so he starts teaching them about what it means to be a part of a family. He teaches them about chores and about, res- about respecting each other. He talks about love that doesn't move, you know, this faithful kind of love. He teaches them about church and the gospel. He would come home after a long days of work at 55 years old and start doing homework until he went to bed with these kids who didn't study very well. Now, did those kids have to perform all those things to be a part of the family? No. They were part of the family because of Phil's grace, the father's grace. Now, did they have to work because they were part of the family? Yes, they did, right? They had to work. They had all those chores to do. They had to learn those things, but they were secure in this affection and love of the father that motivated their desire to figure this thing out and learn how to do chores and learn how to belong to a family. The same is true for us in Christ. There is no work we have to do to belong to the family of God because Jesus did all the work. But because of that reality now, we are free to pursue obedience because we're grateful people, right? Amen? A a gratitude should motivate us. So Paul's given us reasons why we should present ourselves. One is simply, you have no idea how great you have it. Fully accepted. You can't lose it. There's another reason he gives us in verse 16, and that is this, the reality that we will serve somebody. He says, um, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. This is the Bob Dylan theology right here. And to be honest, uh, freedom or the word slave for Americans who love their freedom, it's kind of our own obsession, right? We also have some really bad uh, shaming history of oppressing people too. And so the idea of slave is not a very well-liked word, and I, and I understand that. But, but Paul is dealing with an absolute. In fact, he even admits it's kind of a difficult illustration in verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because, because simply um, of natural limitations. I, I think he's, he understands that he has just told us we're free in Christ only to tell us we're slaves to Christ. It sounds a little weird, a little double talk. It makes sense when we get all done with the sentence, but he understands it's a limited illustration Either way, he uses it. And what he's saying here in verse 16 is this truth. No one's free. No one's free. There is no such thing as absolute freedom. According to him, you're either serving sin or you're serving righteousness. You're either serving the Lord or you're serving the devil, right? No one's free. You were born physically in sin. 
broken and twisted and separated from God. You are born again as a Christian, as a slave to God and his righteousness, right? No one is free. And that's his theology. You want, you want a reason to present yourself to God, just understand that you're either serving one king or another. And that's a, that's a reason. Verse 17, he gives us another reason to present ourselves, and that is the reality of the Holy Spirit power. There is a certainty with what God has done to the Spirit to us. Look at verse 17. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. There are three phrases, three or four phrases here that help us understand the power of the Spirit and the work that God has done for us, the certainty that we will present ourselves to God. The first one is obedient from the heart. You see it there? Verse 17. Uh, the NIV uses the idea of wholehearted obedience. In other words, it's the gospel that can fix and affects the heart so that there's real change. Um, in, in other words, let me say it this way. God opens our eyes to the gospel before he does, he opens our eyes, before he opens it to a saving truth, there's a potential that we have merely understood it as an intellectual truth, right? Who couldn't tell you who Jesus is in our culture? If I said to him, Jesus came to die for, everyone would finish the sentence. That's an intellectual understanding, an ascent in the mind. And before our eyes are open, according to the scriptures, it's foolishness to us. Before they're open, someone can say, listen, I think there's some God out there, and I think there's a person named Jesus, and I'm going to buckle down and try really hard and conform to some moral standard and, and try to get my outside conformed to whatever that truth is. And that's called religion. And all around the world, everywhere today, there are people out there climbing hills on their knees trying to appease God. And that's a mental ascent to somehow trying to conform the outer person that makes God go, well, I like you then. Right? But what the Holy Spirit has to do is open our eyes to the spiritual reality that you can't do that. And your righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. And you have to receive what you cannot earn. And so... Paul talks about this obedience, this wholehearted obedience that when the Holy Spirit works in your life, what comes out of it is a full-orbed, full-heart affection for the things of God. Not a men mental ascent, but a, a true heart ascent. Here's another phrase that, that helps us understand his intent. That, that phrase, standard of teaching, that Paul uses in verse 17 is simply describing a specific message with specific content that has to be received. There is only one name under heaven by which men must be saved. This, this narrow way is so small, it excludes all other options. And Paul simply says, listen, there is a particular standard. His name is Jesus. There's a truth teaching that you have to believe and receive. And, and if you do, then there's going to be this wholehearted transformation. The other phrase that you've got to see here is the word committed at the end of verse 17. It's a verb, and it's a passive verb. In other words, it means it's something, it's not something I commit myself to, it's something that was committed to me. You get it? So the point of this is that the gospel's message and the truth of the gospel, the Holy Spirit had to teach me. The Holy Spirit had to open my eyes to believe it. I didn't consider the truths and lay it out and compare and contrast it to things that are a lie and go, this one makes more sense. This one's more in intelligent. This one is better for me. I didn't make those choices. Uh, God made those choices. The Holy Spirit applied this truth. So if we read this backward, this is how it, how it goes. The Holy Spirit commits the truth to us 
We receive what he gave, this specific narrow truth of Jesus alone by grace alone. And what happens because of that is a wholehearted, obedient Christian. Do you see it? You see verse 17, how that flows? That there is a reason why we are to present ourselves is because the work that God has done is a perfect work that will produce this kind of obedient Christian. So Paul starts in verse 17 with a praise, like a worship service. Thanks be to God. And the reason why he says that is because the only capacity, the only power, the only heart to ever understand, believe, receive, and obey the gospel is because it's all a work from God, from faith to life. Amen? All of it. All of it's a work of God. One, one last reason Paul deals with um, to present ourselves, and that is the result Simply look at the result of our pursuits. Um, look at verse 20 to 22. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, what he's saying there is when you were stuck in your sin and blind, righteousness made no sense. You were not interested in righteousness. You were not going to pursue those things. He says, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things from which now you are ashamed? For the end of those things is Death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Paul's argument is really, really simple. What did you get from sin? Where did it lead you? I know where it led you. It's the same where it led me. Regret, disappointment, pain, disillusionment, right? Scars, we all got them, don't we? If I am only honest with what Paul asked here, where did sin lead you? What was the fruit of your behavior before Jesus? You can look back and go, I would love to close that door and never look back. If, if God had an eraser, he could just erase my brain and I could start all over. I'd love that, but we walk around with a limp. So I guess we should ask the question, was life fulfilling before Jesus? No. Did you have any hope of heaven before Jesus? Did you know God before Jesus? His answer, he asks an absurd question because the answer is so easy. No. There was only bad that came from my life before. Only bad. And every one of us in here know the absolute dead end of sin. Don't we? And I think that's where Romans 6.23 comes in. As much as it's been used to describe kind of the Romans road part of, of our conversion, I think it says more about the reality of wrestling with sin day to day. And here's, here's my point. Um, the Romans road is like a, a, a couple of passages. This is called, some, some have called Romans the, the greatest letter ever written. I think it may be true. Um, there are key verses that have been used to describe like a step-by-step -step process to see your need and see God's solution and trust in Jesus. 623 is one of those verses, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a ter an eternality discussion about that verse, meaning this, ultimate death awaits those who reject God's solution for your sin. If you go it apart from Christ, then one day you will die forever in a place called hell. That's true, right? Right, that's true. And there's an eternity to be gained in heaven. That's also true. I'm gonna suggest to you that is not the essence of what Paul is trying to say here. It's a true statement and we can use that, but Paul thematically, if we're staying in context, is dealing with present sin, ongoing struggle with sin and the ongoing fruit of righteousness. Paul is simply continuing his argument. What, did you, what do you gain from rebellion? Nothing. The wages of sin is death, church. 
Even now for Christians, if you spend your time being selfish and self-centered and solving your own problems and not serving other people and taking and taking and taking, the result of that kind of life is death now. It's going to be miserable. You won't be happy. You'll have scars and regret. It's now. And the proof, I think, for Paul's argument is the word wages there. The word wages is, is a word to describe daily rations for a soldier, not the pay of a soldier's job. Okay, so get this. A soldier would, his pay would be months or months or years and years later. That's the wages that we classically use for Romans 6.23, that the ultimate end of a man or a woman's life is that what he earns is hell forever. Paul uses a word to describe the daily experience, rations of a soldier. So the idea is that I think what Paul's trying to say here is, hey, listen, if you live your life self-centered and selfish, not presenting yourself to God, then what you'll earn every day, your rations for every day will be a death block. Ever been there? Every Christian I know has been there at least once. Lose our mind for a second, forget the truth, absolutely concerned or convinced that that we should grab our life and wrestle it to work out our way and, and it doesn't produce and we walk around just burdened and wore out and I think Paul is saying, listen, What you get for sin does that. You see my point? It wears you out. And so I want to finish with this thought. I'm going to give you one so what. So if you like simple outlines, I can't do any better. Okay, one one thing. It's going to have some sub points, but one major point. And if you remember this, you've done well. How do you pursue the holiness that Paul says to do? do How do we do this? Real simple. Stop fighting sin. Let that hurt a little bit. Stop fighting sin. Spend your time presenting yourself to God. There's a big difference. You have uh, tried fighting sin as I have tried fighting sin. You've put on the, on the mirror in the morning the four things you won't, won't, don't want to do, the things that wear you out. You say, I'm, I'm going to go the other way. I mean, you, you're just focused on fighting the sin and You've forgotten that the most attractive part of seeing sin gone in our life is to pursue another affection. Just love something else greater. I don't have room in my mind or my life to to love everything equally, but if I love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, some of that other stuff just kind of dissipates. Do you understand? Don't fight sin anymore. You have to ask yourself the question, okay, let's let's say you chose to fight sin. Let's say you just want to muster up the hard effort work to fight sin. Where does that stop? How far will you go to fight sin? There are pitiful confessions of monks who have shut themselves up in monasteries for years, trying to conquer their evil passions. Still, their evil imaginations almost drove them insane. They did not achieve power over lust through isolation from society. Just when they thought they were freed from lust and that all the fleshly desires were under control, they would fall under a spell of runaway passions and unbridled evil thoughts. One certain monk lived for 50 years in a subterranean cave, trying to bring his body under subjection to the spirit. Others buried themselves up to their necks in burning sand, hoping to burn out their iniquities. There are monks who slept on bundles of thorns and piles of broken glass. Others bound one foot, hopping around on one foot until they lost the use of the other. One monk forced his body into a loop of a cartwheel and stayed in the fetal position for 10 years, having to be fed by others. 
One stayed for 30 years on top of a column. And when, no, when too weak to stay there, he had a post erected and he chained himself to it. All of these self-torturing methods were inflicted by monks trying to do away with the evil presence in them. They were trying to annihilate the part of them that lusted after sin. All I'm saying, if it's possible to try to fight sin harder, we got no shot. <laughs> I'm not doing this. Are you doing this? I hate sin, but I'm not tying myself to anything. I'm not going to do that. So somehow it doesn't work. If a monk could bury himself up to here to avoid sin and it still controlled him, then fighting sin is a waste of time. Maybe we should spend our time presenting ourselves every moment to Jesus. Maybe we shouldn't even consider the things we struggle with or the things that overtake us from time to time. Maybe we should just go, hey, today I get to present myself to Jesus. Andy Stanley has this phrase. It's kind of a no-brainer, but it still helps us understand this. He says that direction determines destination, not intention. Direction determines destination, not intention. And here's, here's what he means. In other words, just being sincere doesn't get you where you want to go. You can sit here and say, I hate sin like God hates sin, and I hate the sin that I've committed. And after all, Paul says, listen, it just does nothing but kill you, and I don't have any good fruit from it. It's all bad fruit. I'm just going to be intentional about hating that sin and, and going against that sin. And, and I think it's, it's true what, what Stanley says is that uh, if your intentions could get you to the right place, we'd all be doing well. But maybe we need to change our direction. For instance, if you wanted to go to Tucson, I don't know why you'd want to go to Tucson, but if you wanted to go to Tucson and you said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pack a lunch, I'm going to get a map, I'm going to fill up my car, and I'm going to head out and get to 17, and I'm going to turn north. You're not getting to Tucson. You could mean well. You could have Tucson on the brain. You could think, like, I, I want to get there. I love the place. I, I'm going to hang out there. But you went right instead of left, Okay. So, so direction actually has more to say with where you end up than just feeling good about it or having good intentions about it. So maybe, maybe your sincerity to hate sin and try to fight sin is, although it's well-intended, maybe it's a waste of direction. Maybe you should focus your attention on the beauty of God and his son Jesus. Maybe we should focus on presenting ourselves daily. And by the way, church, it's not brain surgery. You're going to hate how simple this is. You're going to have heard this in, in, in Sunday school a thousand years ago, and you're going to go, oh, well, that's no big deal. Well, that's all the Bible gives us, okay? So let me just give you a couple suggestions. If you want to be done with fighting sin and you want to present yourself to Jesus, how do you do that? Well, I would just suggest that you make time for God every day. I'm so smart. Make time for God every day. If you choose to spend time managing your life apart from proximity to God, there is this war, and I've told you this before, between the flesh that's still being shaped, this is the sanctifying part of me, and the God-loving soul of me. If I feed the flesh, I promise you when sin presents itself, who's going to do the talking? I promise you guaranteed. But if you feed the soul that God has authored and changed, when that temptation, when that struggle comes, you're going to go, God's way more beautiful. I'm going to present myself to him. How about, how about uh, be careful who gets to speak into your life? Some of us are consumed with news resources and internet and TV and the wrong books and things like that. I'm just saying, you can get out what you put in. 
to be really honest, and I'm not telling you what, I'm just suggesting that maybe, maybe some news channel that does nothing but fearmonger isn't really good for believers. How about honor God with your wealth? You might say, how does that have to do with presenting myself? Because wealth is the clearest indicator to your affections and your worship. I was talking to Justin. Supposedly there's a USA Today article that, that uh, just came out today or something that says that um, evangelical church giving has dropped behind depression-level giving. It doesn't scare me. What it tells me is that God is refining the church and only Christians are giving now. But it, maybe you should ask, really, um, how God wants to use your wealth. How about prayer? Have you heard one yet you haven't kind of heard before? How about ongoing communication with God? Never hang up prayer. Not event prayer, life prayer. What about protect worship at all costs? We live in a culture that likes to give God 20%. What if, what if we actually obeyed the Bible that says do not forsake the assembly? What if we made it our passion, our mission, never never to neglect worship. Maybe we protected that. Maybe we'd memorize God's word. The scriptures say, if I hide God's word in my heart, I will not what? Sin against him. I didn't say that. Maybe if we serve other people. Our counseling department is full of people when we counsel them that their whole life is nothing but a focus on themselves. Now, I, I get it, but part of, part of the reason why people are in deep problems is because they can't think of anything but themselves. And maybe if we served other people, Maybe that would help. Maybe if we picked good friends. The Bible says bad company corrupts good character. I was always blown away by that truth. I can have good character. doesn't matter. Bad company corrupts it. You measure that. You decide that. If you're looking at this going, wow, that's really attractive. I don't have to fight sin anymore, and I can present myself to God. Well, you have to then be disciplined. I know that sounds like the dirty word when we're talking about God's grace. You're fully saved and fully accepted, right? Fully saved. But Christ is more beautiful, amen? Present yourselves. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. Um, there's never a time when we don't. I thank you, God, that there isn't any, any work that we do to be loved by you. There is nothing that has to happen for the gospel not to be applied to us because Jesus paid it all. God, as Christians, as changed people, we sit here um, wrestling at times with the flesh that wars with the spirit, and we understand that uh, Paul says to present ourselves as instruments of righteousness. God, help us to see that this isn't necessarily hard to understand, but it does mean that we need to apply ourselves. God, not to be loved, not to be accepted, not to feel good about our relationship with you, simply so that we can love what's most beautiful. God, help us do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen, amen. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next week.